Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time, and I ask that you would speak through me that the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips would be uh, pleasing in your sight. For we ask it, for I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. There was a wealthy man who um, had a terminal illness, and he knew that he was going to pass on. And he wanted to take his money with him, or at least uh, try to take his money with him. So he had a, a doctor friend, a pastor friend, and a lawyer friend. And so what he did is he gave each one of these gentlemen $100,000. And he said to them, um, when I pass, what I want you to do is to take the $100,000 and bring it up to the casket and put it inside the casket. So when I get buried, you know, I'll, I'll feel like I've taken the money with me. So uh, you know, unfortunately, he eventually passed on. And uh, sure enough, at the funeral, each of those gentlemen came up and put in their, their little packet of uh, money. They got together after the funeral, and uh, they were talking. And uh, had a future Jimi Hendrix right there. Uh, <laughs> uh, they got together after the funeral, and um, they began to talk. And finally, the doctor had to confess. He said, I have to confess to you, I, I kept 25000 to myself. And the pastor smiled and said, uh, yeah, I have to too. I kept 20000 for myself. And the lawyer looked at him and said, uh, some friends you are, you deceitful cheats. I wrote a check for the entire amount of $100,000. You can't take it with you. And that lawyer understood that. Uh, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? Uh, the stuff that we have remains here. My mother was an antique dealer for 31 years, and I can remember going to various antique shows, and uh, Brimfields, for example. I remember one time particularly, I was standing out there, looking across this field of all of this, all these antiques are like over 100 years old, and realizing that these are just possessions of people that lived over 100 years ago, and, and they're gone. Kind of an obvious observation, but I think we kind of forget that the stuff that we own stays here. Um, but what about God's property? As we looked at last week, that um, God's ownership is determined by what, what's, what his image is on, right? Remember Jesus held up a coin in a denarius and said, um, whose image is on this? And they said Caesar, well, then render to Caesar, uses a different word. Give back to Caesar what Caesar's, but render to God that what is God's. <clears throat> and the word image is used. And so God owns us because we have his image. But now we're going to move into a slightly different angle on this same thing. We're going to move into the area of money and possessions. And uh, it's interesting, it's a major theme in the scriptures. Forty of the, uh, 16 of the 40 parables in the, in the Gospels are about this subject, money and possessions. 288 verses in all of the four Gospels are dedicated to 
money and possessions. It's 10% of the Gospels deal with this. There are more words in, in Scripture on this subject than the words about heaven and hell combined. It's a major theme. There's about 500 words, roughly, I should say 500 references to prayer, and it's about another 500 references to faith. But there are over 2,000 references to money and possessions in the scriptures. A major theme. And it should be a major theme in our lives too, right? I mean, we're in a Western culture especially, as I said last week, and if we're not worried about our next meal and we have a roof over our head, we're more wealthy than 90% of the rest of the world. Um, the rest of the world is looking often for where the next meal is coming from. But as soon as I mentioned uh, <coughs> money and possessions, we, we kind of get a hardening of the attitudes, don't we? Um, because it says a lot about us, what we spend our stuff on, our money on, and what the stuff that we accumulate. It says a lot about us. Um, Charles Ryrie, who uh, I was a privilege to know, said this about money and possessions. How we use our money demonstrates the reality of our love for God. In some ways, it proves our love more conclusively than depth of knowledge, length of prayers, or prominence of service. These things can be faked. But the use of our possessions shows us, shows us up for what we actually are. And of all the things and all the people that Jesus could have used to demonstrate this principle to us, he uses a widow and a poor one at that. But let's first look at the context of Mark and see where she sits in this. As you know, I remember from last week, Mark... Uh, is about a gospel of fellowship. <laughs> it's a way in which a disciple is to follow Jesus Christ. And so in the first eight uh, chapters of Mark, we see that Jesus uh, is demonstrating who he is. He's authenticating um, what he came to do and who he was by all of the miracles that he performed and the various boat scenes that he constructed with his disciples in order to build their faith to help them to be convinced about who he was. And in chapter 8, uh, Peter gets it, right? Peter confesses to, to Jesus and to the rest that you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So in chapter 8 to 11, what we see is that Jesus is trying to show his disciples what his mission is. Now you're convinced about who I am. Now I want to show you what I'm here to do. And they don't get it. He gives three passion predictions. He tells them that um, he's going to be uh, turned over to the Sanhedrin. He will be scourged and uh, nailed to a cross and die. And on the third day he will rise again. They don't get it. He says it three times to them. And they don't get it. <laughs> so now in chapter 11 to 16, he moves from trying to convince them of his mission. And I'm not saying uh, that nobody got his mission. There were certain people that did get his mission. But the disciples didn't get it. 
So in chapter 11, you have the triumphal entry all the way to, to chapter 16. You have what is going on here is that Jesus is trying to tell his followers that in order to follow me, you have to follow me with everything. You've got to follow me with all of your heart. You have to remain steadfast and faithful to me in the midst of what I'm going through. It's interesting that John Mark wrote this gospel. He's the same person who deserted Paul and Barnabas in, in one of their missionary journeys. He was also considered a disciple of Peter who also failed Jesus as well. And so he has the leg up on us all by knowing what it means to fail. And I'm sure we all know what it means to fail Jesus in some capacity or another. But what he's laying down for us are not easy things. They're not easy truths. It's going to be easy for me to communicate it to you, but it's going to be very difficult for all of us to live out. Because he's going to talk about ownership. Um, so let me pick up where we're going to focus on today in uh, chapter 12 at verse 35. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can, a scri- how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng marveled, uh, uh, heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and and a poor widow came, and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all she had to live on. So let me set the context of this chapter. As we talked about last week, it starts with a coin and ends with two mites, right? A penny. The coin it starts with is the, the denarius, which is a, uh, a payment for a day's work. And of course they ask him, who you pay taxes to, and Jesus takes the coin and says, you know, whose image is on it? And he said, Caesar, then render, give back to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render to God, give back to God what is God's. And he said, image, 
that's a key word there because it's used of the same image that uh, is used of God creating man in, in our image. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew in that Old Testament passage in Genesis. And that, that connection would not have been lost on them. <laughs> so God's ownership is determined by his image in people's lives. And therefore, he owns all that we are and all that we have. But, of course, the question comes, how much uh, does God want? Yeah, he owns us, but how much does he want of us? And, of course, he moves on, uh, and the Sadducees are playing games with him in the next uh, controversial story. So we move from two groups of people that are opposed to him to one group of pe- uh, people, the Sadducees, and they're saying that, well, you know, this, this woman is married seven times in, in, in the resurrection. Whose husband is she? That kind of thing. Just playing a game with him about it. And Jesus says, you're, you're ignorant. <laughs> you don't know the scriptures. That God's covenant, that God's relationship to us goes beyond the covenants that we have with each other. He says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's, his covenant with them is beyond what he said on this earth because they're dead but his covenant remains so what he's saying here is that his ownership and his relationship to those people and to that covenant that nation uh, goes on into eternity and of course what we have is now a single scribe who um, comes up and says you know what's the greatest commandment Jesus and Jesus says to him what the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is the first time in the Gospels that anyone from the Sanhedrin says to Jesus, uh, you've spoken well. And that sure might have surprised Jesus a little bit. And because he says back to Jesus, the other four more alls, right? He says to him, yes, uh, to love him with all the heart, all the understanding, and all the strength and the love your neighbor as yourself uh, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. I think just a little wordplay there. In other words, his, the kingdom of his understanding that to, is to give all to God is very close to the kingdom. But also, Jesus is standing right in front of him. I'm sure the, the implication there is you're not far from the kingdom, me, because I represent the kingdom. And now he moves on to talk about that kingdom and that king. So what happens is he, he begins to talk about, uh, uh, into, he goes into the temple and he begins to teach. And he says um, to uh, the people there, the leaders, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He himself, uh, David himself, and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How is it that he, how is it he, uh, he is his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So what we have here is we have... Jesus using uh, one of the strongest messianic psalms in all the Psalter uh, to, to show that he is the mediating king. 
Psalm 110 is about a warrior king that ascends the throne after battle. And he is uh, enthroned until all of the enemies are put under his feet. And David is writing this and he says that the Lord said to my Lord, referring that he's referring to the Messiah as the Lord. And Jesus says, turns and says to them, uh, how can he do that if it's his son? But he can do that because it's talking about the Messiah. That ultimately there's going to be a great enthronement of the Messiah and he will mediate all of God's lordship and sovereignty over all of this earth. And David is in subjection to him. Implication is, you're not. So here we have, um, once again, a, um, a connection with ownership. With the coin, we have the connection with the image of God being the owner. With the, with the scribe, we have the fact that because he is that ownership, we are to love him with everything that we have. And in this we have the enthronement of the king himself. And with that authority, with that enthronement, with that sovereignty, we are to subject ourselves to him. Now, <clears throat> he moves on to give us uh, a warning. He says to, uh, 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 to the people, uh, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the, like greetings in the marketplace and and they have the best seats of the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. They devour widows' houses and and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. There's three words I want to point out to you. Notice what he says they have the best seats. Same word used are referring to the greatest commandment, the best. Translated a little differently. And then you see again, honor connected to the same concept of the greatness of what is the greatest commandment, right? And then the latter part, he says they will receive a greater condemnation. Exactly the same word used of the greatest commandment. Jesus' point here is those hypocrites are not fulfilling the greatest commandment. They're not loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and spirit. They are basically doing things hypocritically. The word for hypocrite comes from uh, the acting uh, concept of when in the ancient days they would hold up a, a face on a stick and they would speak behind the face because the face would project one image and the actor would be behind it saying something else or saying through that image um, what, what needs to be said. So there's this dichotomy between what the person is and what the person says. Now, we're all hypocrites in recovery, right? Uh, my non-Christian friends... Uh, often say to me, you know, I don't like the church because it's full of hypocrites. And I said, well, you're right. You know, it's true. We fail to live up to what we believe in. We really do. Uh, but tell me, do you live up to everything that you believe in? Well, no. I mean, nobody does. Well, okay, then uh, then you're in the same boat we are. <laughs> um, 
we're all in recovery. But Jesus, uh, it's one thing to be in recovery. It's another thing to deny it and to just go on living your life as if everything is fine and also to demand the best of everything. And that's what these people were doing. Now, in stark contrast to that, he tells us about this widow. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in uh, money into the offering box. Um, treasuries in the court of the Gentiles and the offering uh, box were, boxes were kind of like um, like trumpets. They had horn, they had sort of like a, a big funnel on the top of it came down and there were metal and they it came down into the bottom of it. And so that's why he said that you know, many people were giving a lot of money. The reason he, they would know that is because you know, they would dump all this money in there and make a lot of noise going down. You know, and they'd be standing there, look how much I gave, you know, kind of thing. And uh, he notices this poor widow. Probably, maybe, the same kind of widow that the, the, in the verses above, the Sadducees devoured their, their houses, it says. Maybe it's, this is the same, one of the widows. This poor widow came and put in two copper coins, making, uh, making a penny. The copper coins were um, leptons. They're, they're called uh, leptons. And they were about 2% of the daily wage of a denarius. All right? So um, let's put it in modern terms. The uh, average uh, hourly wage today is, I think it's 12.75, is it? 12.75, something like that. But I thought it was 12 dollars an hour. But uh, let's say for a, a day's work, you would earn 97 bucks. And if you put in the same amount that this woman did, it would be a dollar 92 cents she gave in our terms today. But two leptons. The sound of those two cents sliding into the coffers was the sound of her life being poured out to God. And Jesus says that she put in more than everyone else because she put in all that she had to live on. You know, and she had every excuse not to give, like us. (laughs) Josephus says that the top of the temple mantle was inlaid with pure gold. And when the pilgrims would come from all over Israel to to the temple mountain, they used to have to do it three times a year. Uh, There'd be thousands and thousands of these people. Josephus said that when the sun would hit the top of that, that, those panels, it would shine like the sun itself. I can imagine this woman walking up there and looking at this, this gorgeous temple and going, what are my two cents going to do? They're not going to add any gold to that. I'll just keep them. But she had a different motive for giving. She could have rationalized it too. She could have said, I got bills to pay. I have food to get. I have rent to pay. You know, I need this money to pay those bills. I think I'll keep it. But she had a higher priority in her life. 
She could have looked up, looked at the priesthood, looked at the ministry of that temple, and said, they're all corrupt. And she would have been right. They were all corrupt. And you think I'm going to give my money to that corrupt institution? But she wasn't giving it to them. She was pouring her heart out to God. She understood God's ownership in her life because she knew who was the owner of all that she had. And in love, with all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her strength, she gave what she had to God. Maybe this will help. Stuart Weber is an Oregon pastor. He tells the story of his youngest son, the youngest of three boys. Uh, two of the boys were very high-powered individuals, uh, very sports-related, athletic types, but the third was not. Um, he was the more sensitive of the three, and Stuart decided that he felt he needed to encourage him. So he said, I spent, and this is quoting Stuart now, he said, I spent a lot of time with him outdoors, camping, hunting, fishing, and he, as uh, a pocket knife, was well, very essential for anything, you, any kind of activity you do in the wilderness. And uh, the man with the blade sort of thing uh, is the guy that gets the job done. And when they camp, they're always looking for a pocket knife. But Ryan was the one with the knife. And he would always uh, cut the rope or tie it down. Or, uh, and they would always look to him to resolve these issues and these problems when they were out in the wilderness. And so he became the kind of the go-to guy for anything that needed to be fixed. He, it became kind of his identity with the three or four of them together, um, this knife. One year he says that uh, my birthday was coming around. My family planned a party for me. This is Stuart speaking. And the day, that day in the morning, my, my youngest, Ryan, I walked into my office early in the morning where I was studying. At first I didn't, I didn't hear him, but I felt his presence and I turned around and, and uh, he chose this moment to give me something. Uh, not at the party, but something just between me and him. And he reached in his pocket, he pulled out a box and he, he handed it to me. I opened it and it was the knife. His son gave him everything. He gave him sense, his sense of identity. Gave it to his father. So did this woman. She gave him all. Everyone else gave of the leftovers that they had. She obeyed the greatest commandment. She loved God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And bearing the divine image, the Imago Dei, she gave all to her owner, to God. Now, perhaps there's an application for us here today about giving. Now, I don't believe that the tithe is in force today. I know that's a difference of opinion. Some of them might think that the tithe is in force. That's okay. But... I don't think it is, and um, 
if you're a, a person of this church and you call this church your home, then you need to be involved in a regular basis of giving to this church. Um, I don't care about the amount, um, whether it's 10% or less or more. Uh, that's really not the issue. The issue is that you have a routine faithfulness to give to God on a regular basis. If you call this church your home, it, by the way, if you're a guest here today, I'm not asking for your money. By the way, most people think that, uh, the guests think that when they come to the church, the number one thing that we want from them is money. Well, this church isn't like that. We're not about getting money from people that are not committed to this church. So rest, rest assured and enjoy this church as a gift to you. But if you call this church your home, then I would like to challenge you today, if you're not doing it, to give on a regular basis. But this story really isn't about possessions and money, is it? It's really about uh, something that transcends it. It's about acknowledging God's lordship and ownership over all that we are. It's really what it's about. Jim Elliott, who was killed by the Alka Indians in South America, said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I want to give you an opportunity today to acknowledge to God that he owns everything that you have. Now, I have a little heart right here. Okay. And there are the little bowls on each side here. And what I want you to do is that during the communion, as when we start singing again, if you have made a decision to acknowledge God's ownership over all of your life, I want you to take one. Now, if you're not there yet, I understand that, and that's not an issue, but don't take one. But if you have done that, or you want to do that now, then take one. And I want you to take it with you during the week, during the month, during the year, and put it somewhere where you can look at it and say, acknowledge that God owns my heart. God owns everything that I have. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of a disciple to effectively follow Jesus in the midst of suffering, in the midst of opposition, is that we give everything to God and we follow Jesus Christ to where he is going. It is the way of the cross. Like what Isaac Watts said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt and all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were at present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.
Let's pray. Father, um, these are difficult truths. But we as a congregation, as people who love you, help us to give over to you all that we have. And Lord, we know that this is a gradual process, that some things hurt to do this, uh, to give over our, our mates, our children, our relatives, our father, our mother, our brother and sisters, that's really hard to do. And sometimes it's even hard to give over the stuff that's, that we've accumulated. But I ask that as we take these hearts, as we look at what you've done, as we look at this woman who gave everything, may it be an example to us so that we would be so enamored, enamored by your love that's so much for us that we would give our soul, our lives, our all to you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.